in case you haven't been with us or if forgotten, Titus is a probably a young preacher that Paul has sent to the island of Crete to set things in order at the church in Crete. And as we come to chapter 2, you hopefully will remember that last week, I'm sure all of you do, we were talking about some people who were influencing the church at Crete, and they were influencing them in some negative ways. They were teaching that uh, doctrine doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how you live. It's more about performing rituals and doing religion on the, the outside, but there's not much inner transformation. It's not necessarily a heart from which uh, works and a different life are going to flow, but it's more just about uh, doing things, it being at church and doing all your religious rituals. And so that's why the title of the sermon last week was Doctrine and Duty, and these people were separating the two. As we come to the text in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul is putting these two together. Doctrine and duty cannot be separated. In fact, what Paul's going to say is that duty flows from doctrine. And so for those of you who think, well, I'm, I'm not really into theology, it's not that important, well... That might be why your life shows weakness when it comes to Christian living. Doctrine is very important, and it's from doctrine that duty will flow, that Christian living will flow. And so this is what we we come to in Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 in the chapter. And in, in this text, Paul is laying out the description of Christian community. This is our our topic this morning, what the Christian community is to look like. I want to read to you a main thought. This isn't in your notes. And let me remind you, if you will open your bulletin, there's a folded sheet of white paper there, and it has the notes for the sermon today. Um, But this is the main thought of the text. Christian community, the Christian community, built and sustained by God's grace and God's word, presents a constant defense of the gospel, a constant defense of the gospel. What we're going to say is that, what we're going to see is that Paul tells the people to act in certain ways. He's going to give a description of this is how older people are to act, this is how younger people are to act, and those things. And what he's going to constantly say is so that God's word might not be undermined, so that the gospel might not be undermined, so that people cannot speak anything evil about the gospel about the good news of Christ Jesus and how that transforms lives. As we concluded last week, one of the statements I made is that your life is either the best apologetic or the best critique of the Christian faith. Your life is either the best apologetic or the best critique of the Christian faith. Paul is broadening that in this text to say it's not only each individual life, but it's how the body works together. That is either the best apologetic or the best critique of the Christian faith. I think Jesus summarized this well when he said, you will know them by their love for one another. You will know them by their love for one another. Let me read to you a quote from the early half of the second century. I've shared with this before, but it's been a long time. This was from the early half of the second century. A man named Aristides spoke this when the emperor of Rome visited the city, and he is a believer, and he's defending the validity of the Christian faith. And listen closely to how he chooses to defend this validity of the Christian faith. He says, concerning Christians, they do not worship strange gods, and they go their own way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. 
And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver, deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. Just a little bit more. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, listen to this, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. You see, the early church said that it was their behavior that was the greatest defense of the gospel. It was the fact that Christ had transformed the way that they live that said the gospel is real. It does something. It changes people. It's real. It is reality. Christ really has died so that we might be reconciled to God. This was the greatest offense. And so as we come to this sermon, this, the next few minutes, as we discuss the Christian community from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I, I, I say this, and I, knowing what I'm saying, I think this is one of the most important sermons I will preach. I didn't say it's one of the best sermons I will preach. I said it's one of the most important. Listen closely. How we act as a body, how we interact, tells the, God, tells the world whether it's real or not, whether it's real or not, and whether it's really changed our lives, and whether it can change theirs. And so, it's a very important message. Let's read this together. Will you stand with me as we read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10? Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says to Titus, But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine, with sound teaching. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness or endurance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would speak clearly through some difficult words. 
God, that you would give us grace to bear the commandments that you've given us, the instructions, Lord. May we know that it is only through Christ Jesus that we can do any of these things. And so, Father, we approach them humbly and we approach them leaning on your grace, trusting that you provide us all that we need for life and for godliness. Lord, speak this morning clearly from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The introductory verse is very important. Paul says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What Titus is to do is to speak of the behavior that's consistent with good teaching. You see that there's a teaching that Titus is presenting, but there's also a behavior, principles that go along with that teaching. And so as we look at this text this morning, we need to attempt to draw from it things that are very practical from Christ, for Christian living. So I do want to try to help you with that application. I think there are some things that go along with parenting, some principles that go along with this, some principles that go along with how the body is to interact, intergenerational ministry. I think there are some very important aspects here. So we want to make sure we get to these practical things. And I pray that, that you hear these things. I realize that I don't have children I realize that I haven't worked this out myself. But parents, I pray that you're taking your principles from parenting, for parenting from the God's Word. And you're parenting in accordance with sound teaching. Let's take a, a couple of points from culture before we uh, get into the rest of this. First, first, we see that older men are to uh, represent an example. We see also in this text that older women are to be intentionally teaching younger women. We'll get to this in a moment, but one of the important aspects of this is that older women were not necessarily in some uh, specific teaching place. They didn't, they didn't have a set place where they were teach, like a classroom. What the text is saying is that older women are to take opportunity in everyday interactions with younger women to teach them. This isn't a classroom setting. This is a life setting where these people are interacting and younger people are learning from older people. One of the things that's interesting is I, I think about this. What, this. what this text is getting at is intergenerational ministry, where younger people are constantly with older people. But one of the things that's challenging for me is I've had a couple of opportunities to be in churches, particularly Southern Baptist churches, that are in a very declining state. I've had the opportunity to preach at several of these churches. If you went and took a vacation, uh, chances are that if you visited a Southern Baptist church that wasn't a very popular one, that you'd be visiting a dying Southern Baptist church because we have so many that are dying. The interesting thing about these is that many of these churches are filled with senior adults. The churches I've been in that are dying were filled with just senior adults. At some point, God's design for the church has been broken. This intergenerational ministry has been missed. And the generations have completely disconnected. And so Crosspoint, this should be a challenge for you. I, I don't believe that Crosspoint is dying. But we do need to ask, is intergenerational ministry really happening here? Do we have, have we built community in such a way that the younger people are separated from the older people? Or are they getting to interact? Are they getting to sharpen one another? This is a, a big question. So, 
a point taken from the church. It looks like God's design has been broken and we need to repair it. Secondly, a point from the world, from the wider culture that we see. Tim Keller makes clear in his new book called The Meaning of Marriage that marriage is at its lowest point in history. Less people are getting married than ever in history in the United States. Not only that, that less people getting married, but more people are getting divorced than ever in history in the United States. Friends, the family is accepted by a wider culture mostly as the building block of society. And so it's interesting that as you see the family disintegrating in American culture, you also see America on a decline. The reason I'm saying this is because Titus lays out what a marriage, what a family is supposed to be like. And when God's design for life, including marriage, children, and intergenerational interaction is not followed, it will result in the downfall of society. This is what happens. You see, Christian behavior both accords with sound doctrine, it accords with God's design for life, and it gives others nothing negative to say. Let me explain why why others will have nothing negative to say. Because living by God's design always results in some type of human flourishing. This doesn't mean necessarily financial. We're speaking more of the dignity of each person, joy, knowledge, wisdom necessary for life. When God's design is abandoned, someone will be oppressed. Someone will be oppressed. Someone will not be shown dignity. This is what happens when couples divorce, when divorce happens. The children, as children become victims. Friends, when God's design is neglected, it will result in a decline of society as a whole. And so we, as the church, are to take up God's design. And as we live out God's design, it will be attractive for all. Even if they don't like the gospel, they're attracted to a loving family. They're attracted to marriages that somehow work beautifully, where couples love one another for 60 years. People are amazed by that, even if they don't accept the gospel. So, let's look closely at all of these things this morning, these qualities, these groups of people. It's, we're going from the question, what Christians do, what we do. And the first thing we do is we recognize our roles within the body. We recognize our roles within the body. We're first going to take a look at the older men. This comes first in the text in verse 2. It says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. This sober-minded, it means self-controlled. And what I want you to hear here is it says self-controlled, not legalistic. There's a tendency that when people get older, they fall into very rigid rules and routines. And what the text is saying is that the older men are not legalistic, but they're sober-minded. They know what's good. They know what's best. And they follow those things. They have self-control. Again, they're not demanding certain rules as the only way to go, but they're saying they're self-controlled. They're reverent. They're serious. This is what the next word means. They're dignified. That's, it's, it's reverent or a certain seriousness 
about their manner, about their behavior. This doesn't mean that old men can't be funny. Most of them are in some ways. But they recognize that there's a certain sense of seriousness to life. There's an importance to the decisions that are being made. And so they represent that importance in the way that they behave. The next characteristic, it says self-controlled. And this is very similar to sober-minded, but the root word actually means wise. Older men, they've used their years as an opportunity to grow in wisdom. To grow in wisdom. This is very important. If the older men in our congregations are not wise, then who will be? Man, I hope that you're using the accumulating years to grow in wisdom. There's a certain sense of responsibility, of weight that goes along with your graying hair. You're expected to be able to speak truthfully, lovingly, and wisely. We need you. The next aspects, it says they are to be sound. This means healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Healthy in faith. These men in their growing years have only become stronger in faith. They recognize that they need God. They recognize that they cannot do it on their own. No people can, no person can do it on their own. And so this person's faith has grown deeper and deeper roots. They depend on God. They're healthy in love. Their love is deep. It's not based on euphoric feelings. These men have learned that those feelings pass. But love is about commitment and faithfulness over a period of time. These are faithful men. These are devoted men. And then that last quality, steadfastness, it actually means endurance. It means perseverance. It means these men don't quit. It means you're not going to go home one day and say, well, I've paid my time and turn on the TV and say, now it's my time to rest. Men, we need you. You need to stand up. You need to be the presence of wisdom. You need to be the presence of faithfulness among us. If our younger men are weak, it's because our older men are weak. We need you to step up. You can't do whatever you want now. Men, there's a great responsibility that goes along with first, you're simply being a man. And secondly, with your increasing age. And when you shut yourself off, you abdicate your responsibility. Men, you are to be a presence among us. You are to be a presence among the younger men. Our high school, middle school, Sunday school class should be filled with older men who want to just come in and just be there. We want to be a presence. We want to love on these kids. We want to teach them the importance of their decisions that they're making right now. We need you to be there. How else are they to learn it? I want to ask you, older man, man whose kids are out of the house, when's the last time you called some younger man with young children and just said, let's go to lunch? Let's go. I just want, I just want to get to know you. I just want to talk to you. There has to be intentionality here. It doesn't just happen. You have to make the point to do it. Now, I do want to, to say this. I think there's a sense in which some of us, we just, 
we don't know what to say. We don't, you know, really, I really don't have anything to give. I, what would I teach them? I feel like I don't have anything. Just uh, several months ago, there was a, a person who asked about the opportunity to uh, do some discipleship together, me and, me and him, and, and, and I really had that feeling. I, we're going to sit over coffee, and I'm just going to stutter the whole time. I, I'm not sure what I would say. I don't know what I would teach. Friends, that's not what God's concerned about. God just says, do it. Do intergenerational ministry. Live life together. All people of all ages. He just says do it. And in the midst of it, they will learn from you and you will learn from them. I was thinking about the first time that I went skiing. I decided to do, I was sharing this with a kid last night who wants to do snowboarding and he's never done it before. I realized that first time I went that, you know, those, those uh, ski lifts, they go up, but they don't come down. That's interesting because if you don't want to do the slope, what do you do? I mean, you kind of have to fake a broken bone and get the person on the uh, snowmobile to come get you, and no guy's going to do that. And so, you know what I had to do when I'd get up to those slopes? I had to do it. The only way to get down was to go down, and sometimes I rolled, but then sometimes I, I, I made it down on my feet. This is what needs to happen. You need to get with these people. You need to model life before them. You need to live alongside them. We need you to do this. This is how we learn. So, older men, great responsibility. Older women. Let's look at the text on older women. Older women likewise. Verse 3. Are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, so training the young women to love their husbands and children, being self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. You'll see here that the responsibility of older women and then their responsibility to teach the younger women, these are going to be intertwined in some sense because we want to focus on what the older women are to teach, but also what the young... Younger women are to learn. Let's look at these first qualities of older women. First, as we see that they are to be reverent in behavior. The root word, there's a word here that means they are to be priestesses. And the meaning of that is that they are to walk about practicing the presence of God. Just like the older man uses his years to accumulate wisdom and knowledge of God maturity in him. Older women should be doing the same thing, learning in their years of serving their families, of serving their churches, of whatever job they're doing. They learn in all those times to practice the presence of God. You should be exemplary in this. The next, the next character, um, the, the next piece of their character is they are not to be slandering. Now, the root word of this is very interesting. It's the root word for Satan. It is the root word for Satan. They are not to be making accusation, false accusation. The temptation for women is to go, might be to go around talking about other people. And what the text is saying is that this is the quality of Satan. This is what Satan does. He speaks lies. He makes false accusations. And so I just want to say here, ladies, be careful how you talk. Be careful about what you say about other people. The smallest whisper, the smallest thing you say about them, 
You are acting in accord with Satan. You are being used by Satan to divide the body. Don't speak evil of others. No matter, it doesn't matter what they've done. The text is clear. It's you can only control you. And so you be faithful. Be careful how you talk. And then, not being enslaved to much wine. Now, there's a kind of a, a cultural thing that goes along with this. Paul is, says this in every description that is like this. He says, including the, the pastor in chapter 1, he says they're not to be enslaved to much wine. Well, there's a certain reason that he says this. Being enslaved to wine or taking a lot of wine was considered a virtue in some places in Cretan culture. How much they could drink or how much they did drink was considered a virtue. And so Paul is saying these older women should not be enslaved to much wine. And I think there's also a point here about older women feeling like their life is their own now and so they can do what they want. So they'll go off and they enjoy themselves and they do whatever they want to do. Paul says they should not be enslaved to much wine. They should be sober-minded like the older men. And then the next thing, that they are to teach what is good. As I said before, this is not a specific teaching office in the church. This is not a classroom that they go to on Sunday mornings. But this is the life they're living before younger women. They are to teach by their life. This is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. But these women are to be around the younger women. And they're to be teaching them. Now, we're going to get into the things that they're to be teaching. Let me, let me say this first to young ladies. I want young ladies and older ladies we need to be listening closely here. But young ladies, please hear me out. If you have your phone, put it down. <clears throat> From movies to music and sadly even to Joyce Meyer, you're taught to seek independence from men, from your family, to enjoy yourself, to shop, and eventually, a couple days a week, you might have to make a meal to support your family. That's the life that they think you should have to be able to live. Or, you might be taught that being a mother and submitting to a husband is not only archaic, but is a waste of your potential and your ability. That raising a family is a waste. That staying home and taking care of children is a waste of your potential. This is false. This is a lie from Satan himself. Katie was at the doctor's office several weeks ago and she was talking with the nurse that was taking care of her and for some, I think the nurse must have asked her where she went to college and Katie shared that she went to Johns Hopkins. And so the nurse responded, um, well, let me say first that in case she, Katie wants to stay home eventually and be able to take care of children and raise them, that's her desire. Well, the nurse responded that she had a friend who went to Johns Hopkins and got her degree and everything, but now is wasting it on staying home and taking care of the children. <laughs> she didn't ask Katie beforehand what she planned on doing with her degree. But this is what the culture thinks. Staying home, taking care of children, serving your family is a waste. Young ladies, this is a lie. The greatest thing that you can do with your life is serve your family, is raise your children, teach them about Christ, teach them the ways of God. This is the most honorable thing you can do. This is the greatest thing you can do with your potential is pass it on to your children. Pass it on to your children and spend your time with them. 
So let's look at these things that the older women are to be teaching and younger women, what you are to be receiving. First, the first thing they're to be teaching, this is very interesting, is to love their husbands and children. Older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and their children. But that's ironic. Doesn't love just come naturally? I mean, don't you just have that feeling about that guy? And that kid, he's so, they're so cute and cuddly. I mean, don't you just always feel that? How do you learn to love your husband and children? Eventually, ladies, you'll find out that that guy, he doesn't really understand you the way that you think you do. And eventually, that child will be more difficult than you thought he would be. Ladies, older women, you've done this You've persisted in marriage for year after year. You've been through the arguments, the discussions. You know how to get through them. You can give hope to the younger women. You've dealt with the children. What do the younger women do when their husband's out of town and the kids won't sleep and they've got four children to deal with? Who do they go to? Older women, are you available? Can they knock on your door and say, I need help now? And you'll drop everything you're doing and say, I'm there. This is what I want to do. I want to serve you. You're to teach them to love their husbands and their children. You're to help them with endurance, to persist and to be faithful in all of it. You're also to teach them to be self-controlled, pure, busy at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Now, there are all kinds of things that could come up here. The busy at home aspect, I really want to point out that Paul is saying that the home is the priority. This is true for the husband and the wife. The most important aspect of your life, of your discipleship, and of all that you're called to do is your home, your family. But I think one of the reasons Paul might be saying this is that women could most easily become bitter about their responsibilities at home. They're constantly there. The work's never over. There's always more dishes to clean. The kids are always screaming. There's always so much to do. And so the older women, you charge them, don't become bitter. Don't become bitter in what you're doing. Continue to love. Continue to do what you're called to do. And you're charging them. Again, we said, culture teaches young, older, young women, get out of the house. Do what you want to do. And you're saying, no, your home is a responsibility. It's your greatest responsibility. Be faithful in your home. And then be submissive to their own husbands. Submissive to their own husbands. Now, let me say this to the husbands out there. This text isn't giving you the right to tell your wife to be submissive. Husbands do not demand their wives to be submissive. If you want your wives to be submissive, you you serve them. You don't get what you want from demanding it. But the text is charging the young wives to be submissive to their husbands, to follow them. Wives, we've studied this before in the book of Colossians, but this is the order set up by God. And it is modeled in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus perfectly models this when he comes to earth and he is the king. He is God. And he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is how you lead men. 
you serve. But then also, Christ Jesus humbled himself. Not counting equality with God something to be grasped. But he became a servant to all. And he even died on a cross. And ladies, you are equal. But this is the order set up by God that you are called to serve and to love your husbands in this way. So, these are the things that younger women are to learn. And these are the things, older women, that you are to be teaching. I want to conclude this part about older men and older women with just one illustration. I was working in New Orleans, and I was working at a a restaurant in the French Quarter, and I worked there during Mardi Gras. And one of the craziest things to me is that during Mardi Gras, the people who came in all during that time acting the most foolish were people about 50 and over. They were older senior adults who'd come in with beads all over them, had drunk, and you would hear the, the, one of the, I heard one of the older women say, man, I if my son saw me like this, doing this. What I said earlier is very important. If our younger generation is weak, it's because our older generation is weak. Older men, older women, if you're not leading, you can't expect the younger people to be strong. If you're not coming to them, living life before them, inviting them into your life to learn from you, you can't expect them to be strong. So this is what you are to do. You are to model it. Now, let's, let's move on to the younger women and younger, younger men, particularly younger men. We've, we've covered a lot of the younger women. And let, let me just say this about both groups. Many younger men and younger women think life is about them. And I want to speak specifically to youth. Culture says they're kids. Let them be kids. Let them do what they need to do. They need to be around kids their own age a lot, all those things. But listen to the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective, even from Titus, seems to be that their youth is a time to prepare to be an adult. Their youth is to be a time not wasted, but in which they're taught to be a responsible, godly, faithful adult. Parents, is this how you're spending your parenting time? Preparing your children to be faithful, godly adults. Again, I I realize that this is not something that I've tested out in my own life. But, Are your parenting principles derived from this model? That your youth are not just to spend time with kids their own age, but they're to spend time with adults learning what godliness looks like. They're to be spending time with senior adults learning how to be faithful men and women. Let me just ask you this question. Do your young kids know how to interact with adults? If they can't, there's something missing. Are your kids spending more time with people their own age, with kids their own age, than with adults? There's something backwards. I can't imagine the responsibility that you have, the weight of it, the struggle every day. But this is the biblical text. 
that you are to be raising them in principle with, in accordance with, healthy biblical doctrine. And the doctrine is that these kids are not to be around people just their own age. It's not a time to waste and for them just to be kids, but it is a time for them to be molded. This is determining who they'll be for the rest of their lives. So, younger men, the description of younger men, it's short, it's sweet, and it's this, it's self-controlled. That's it, self-controlled. Why? Why would Paul be so, is it that younger men don't have many struggles? That must be what it is. Younger men, they're, they're just, life is easy at that stage, right? No. Practically everything young men deal with is related to self-control. Everything. Guys, are you controlling your temper, your tongue? And other things that we can't mention here from the pulpit. Listen to this quote. In youth, the blood, the blood runs hotter and the passions speak more commandingly. The temptations are stronger, strongest at your age. Are you controlling them? The sexual temptations... The decisions you make now will affect you for the rest of your life. Remember that. And then parents, are you helping them develop self-control? Through basic disciplines. Just basic disciplines. Regardless if you have money or not, your children shouldn't be given free reign, but they should be taught to exercise restraint and money. Can your kids set their own alarm? Can they get up on their own? Can they be disciplined in their time? This is where they learn these principles. If they can't be self-controlled under your roof, they're not going to be self-controlled outside of your roof. They must learn self-control. We're getting to the end. E, the last point here. Have a model. Look at verse 7. This is Paul's charge to Titus. He says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Titus, the pastor, the leader in, among these churches at this time, was to be a model for all of them. Paul was charging him with this. And yes, your leader should be a model of good works. But I do want to ask you just in a general sense, do you individually, do you have a model of good works? For some reason, we're inspired by visuals. When we see people doing something, it challenges us to do good as well to aspire to that. And so do you have someone that you're meeting with, someone that you know that you're calling that is a model for you of faithfulness and of godliness? Young parents, I said earlier, older men, when's the last time you called a young parent? I want to ask you, younger men who are parenting, when's the last time you asked for advice on raising your children to an older man who's been through it? When's the last time you called just asked to have lunch and say, I just need help. I need accountability. I need you to ask me if I'm doing well at this, if I'm being faithful at this. Students, let me ask you, when's the last time you asked for advice? Students, over here in this area, right here. When's the last time you asked an older person for advice? Do you think you're wise enough to make it on your own without bad consequences? You need accountability. You need people who love you and who desire best for you. And you need to cling to them and ask for their help and for their advice. Listen to this verse from Proverbs eleven fourteen. 
Where there is no guidance, a people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. You hear that? When you seek out counselors, when you seek wisdom, God will protect you. God will preserve you. But when you seek your own way, every one of you, it is for your destruction. It is not wise. So, please, have a model. Get a model. Next and last point. What we do. First, we recognize our roles within the body. Secondly, we guard the gospel. Look at verse 5. This is in verse 5. Again, these are the reasons that we do what we do. The younger women, this is addressed to, they're to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is one reason that Paul gives us that you are to be faithful. is so that the word of God may not be reviled. Now the first place he hits on this is family life. Family life is transformed into loving submission. Please hear this. When you revile your husband or wife, husband, wife, when you revile your spouse, student, when you revile your parent, you give the impression that the good news of Jesus has no bearing on these relationships and affects them in no way. You might think it's harmless, but often our derogatory comments, they're made out of a lack of respect for that parent or that partner. How has the grace of Jesus Christ transformed your parental relationship? How has it transformed your marriage, husband, wife? And let me say this. Because loving relationships are God's design, people are attracted to them. And this is why when they see relationships working properly and according to God's design, they'll be attracted to them. The gospel provides the hope that these relationships are possible. That loving relationships, that marriage can work out. That people can persevere and can be changed. But when you claim to know Jesus and that doesn't affect these relationships, you just reaffirm people's doubts about Christianity. You reaffirm their pessimism about marriage and about children. So... Guard the gospel by being transformed, by living faithfully in your marriage relationships, in your parental relationships, living faithfully as children, as youth. Then we also guard the gospel through responding well to authority. And Paul points to this in slavery. Slavery is transformed into willing willing service. Now, let me just mention this about slavery. We're nearing the end. Paul never tries to overthrow slavery as this institution. He never tries to overthrow it. We can say that slavery was much, probably much different in the Roman period than it was in America. First of all, Paul had no control over it and couldn't have overthrown it. And so his better avenue was to try to spread the gospel within it. He wasn't saying it's okay. But what he's saying is we have no control. We can't overthrow it. So slaves... Show the gospel within this relationship. That couldn't change it. So slavery was to be transformed into willing service. The two aspects of this is these men, these slaves, were to be humble and they were to be hardworking. Look at verse 9. 
Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What should we take from this? Normally we, we apply this to every authoritative relationship. The point of the gospel is not always about what kind of situation you're in. It's not about whether you have a perfect marriage partner. It's not about whether you have a perfect boss. But it's how the gospel transforms your relationship to that authority. Are you humble? Are you gracious? Are you submissive? The gospel transforms all of these authoritarian relationships into willing service. And then lastly, we guard the gospel by being transformed and we guard the body. We guard the body. This is verses 7 through 8. Titus was to guard the body by showing himself in all respects to be a model of good works and in his teaching to show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. One main point on this. When you speak... When you speak, whether you speak about politics or you speak about the economy, whatever you're speaking about, you represent the body. You represent the body. So speak carefully. When you talk about theology, you represent the body. You represent the church. And so speak carefully. Choose your words wisely. Take James' advice. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to anger. Because when you speak, you could bring a charge against this body. You could discredit us. You could bring a charge against the gospel. And so when you speak, speak carefully. Now, let me just conclude with this. The main point. The Christian community, built and sustained by God's grace and God's word, presents a constant defense of the gospel. When we operate how we're supposed to, people will be attracted. When your marriages, though not perfect, when they operate according to God's design, husbands, you leading in service, wives, you submitting in love, people will be attracted Parents, when you lead your children with the principles of the gospel, people will be attracted. Your children won't be perfect, but people will be attracted. That's fun. Here's the charge. This week, I want every one of you, every one of you in here, to commit to some intergenerational aspect of discipleship. Older man in here, you get involved in some younger man's life. If you're not involved in one, get involved. Community groups has been one way that we've tried to facilitate this. And at the Morrison's home group in particular, we have college students, we have senior adults, we have middle of the road, we have everyone there. College students are getting to get to know all these people. How are you getting involved in this intergenerational ministry? How are you investing? And younger people, how are you being invested in? You need this wisdom. So that's the challenge for you this morning.
that this week you commit to some intergenerational aspect of discipleship and you get on the road with that. You move forward with that. You call somebody. You be intentional. And you just start meeting. Start meeting. Now for those of you who are visiting with us, all of you, why do we do this? We'll come to the text next week. Because God has appeared to us in the salvation of Jesus Christ. We live like this. Every aspect of this. Every obedience is in by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This isn't legalistic rules that we're following. It's because God has shown us grace. He's taken the debt. He's forgiven our sin. And we are one with him. And so we follow him. We obey him. Because he has loved us. If you don't know Christ, if you're just trying to walk along in some kind of rules, you're not going to make it. But if you want to know Christ, come, we will share Christ with you. We'll walk with you as you enter this relationship and this uh, vital relationship with Christ. So we're going to pray together and then we're going to sing. And I want to invite you to be obedient. To be faithful where God is calling you. Performing the role God has called you to perform within this body. So I realize it's getting late. We'll be done soon. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. Lord, that you've taught us your design. How you have created us to live in family and in community. Lord, I pray that you would lead us by your spirit and how each of us are called to live within this. Lord, there are college students here. There are single people here. And Lord, I pray that you would lead them by your spirit to see that they are to work within this body, Lord. They're to help these families. They're to be involved and they're to minister for your kingdom. Lord, they aren't single for themselves. They're single for your glory. And so I pray that they would devote themselves to this. God, may all of this be done by your grace. May we be strengthened, Father, by all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus to live obediently. Thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand and we'll sing together.